If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. This is episode 134 of the podcast. If you're new to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is your place for trusted health guidance and support. Whether you're looking to improve your health or just seeking ways to stay well, we're here for you. This growing community is on a mission to improve our state of being and experience together on the planet. And if you love the conversations and insight you get here from the show, consider becoming a health amplifier. You can support the show and all the time and thoughtful effort that it takes to put these conversations together and bring them to your ears. You can do it for as little as the price of a cup of coffee by going to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. Your support is not only a huge pat on the back to me, but it also helps to get this content to people seeking support and inspiration. So I had a great deep dive here with Dr. Josh Levitt, a naturopath or naturopath, uh, however you like to pronounce it. This was apparently the only thing that we seem to have a difference of opinion on. We have never spoken to one another before, but I was amazed to learn how similarly we see things. We didn't really have an agenda for this conversation. From the few things that I had seen and, and learned about him I, I, after we were introduced, I could just tell he was a cool guy with a lot of experience and understanding. And because I believe we're all recovering in one way or another from the COVID-19 pandemic and the turmoil that surrounded it, I wanted to get his take on natural methods of healing and approaches he uses in his practice. We started out here talking uh, about our experiences, having practiced for more than 25 years each in our careers, and how we're both kind of getting focused more on sharing the understanding and, and knowledge that we've, that we've gained from working with so many different types of things. And we want to resource more people outside of our practices and hopefully, you know, move the needle in developing systems of care driven towards health improvement rather than just treating symptoms. If you'd like to watch us have this conversation, you can check it out on Highway to Health podcast channel on YouTube. Hope this lights up your brain like it did mine. Here's my conversation with Dr. Josh Levitt. My mission to start out with, you know, even was to just explore the idea of what health is because I got involved in a health tech project where that kind of kept coming up, like, how do you engage people in some practice that helps them have some sense of, of what, what, you know, what they're actually trying to achieve? And I know that's probably a big part of, of, of your work day to day, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and where it's kind of like a GPS, right? Like you need to know where you are, you need to know where you're headed and then yeah. you map out a route to get there. And yeah. like, that's different for everybody depending on the, their own situation, you know? Right. And, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, and sometimes, yeah, I mean, and then, and then, but more complex than mapping, right? With a GPS, you know, we have our own biases, right? Like maybe it's towards alternative medicine, or in your case, towards craniosacral, in my case, towards herbs or naturopathic approaches, which may not always be aligned with what you know the right, right route for that particular person. So, yeah, th there's a lot of complexity there for sure. Yeah, and 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 that's what I think needs to be parsed out a little bit more. And I th I think I think we're just getting to a point where people are so frustrated with health system approaches that they're having to advocate so much for themselves and learn so much for themselves, but where do you go for that information? And so, yeah. you know, I mean, I, as, as we were talking before, uh, um, you, you're interested in doing a podcast, your, your take is going to be a, a very unique approach. And, you know, it's it, anyone who's interested in, in what you've been doing, either your patients or, or in, anybody who's, you know, interested in products that you're developing are going to be interested in, you know, what's, what's behind all of that. So that's kind of what I want to get in with to, to <laughs> with you today as well. Wait, yeah, so, so let's do it. Where, where are you? Where are you located? I am in Connecticut. And, and yeah, and just what, up what the road, part? just up the road from Yale. I mean, I live in Hamden, Connecticut, oh, which yeah. is uh, New Haven County. Yep. Um, our claim to fame is pizza, a pizza, <laughs> which starts with an A. Here, a pizza. Okay. Uh, is is what the uh, the old Italians here. We have a large concentration of Italian Americans in this in this state and in this city, and we yeah. are just awash in pizza. The best pizza in the world, according to lots of people. Yeah. So that's. <laughs> well, I I lived in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn for for you know been there on and off for twenty years. So they would argue because <laughs> they, they, they and I know there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations about it's about the water from you know New York or New Jersey right, or right, Connecticut right. that makes the pizza. So. I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, right. The water. The, you know, they, they say the same thing about the bagels in New York City too, right? Yeah, they, yeah. No, no one seems to be able to reproduce them. Something in those New York City water pipes. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, so I had somebody actually come into my office this week and asked me, "What's the schooling for a for a naturopath?" So, is that something that you can can explain to us so we kind of know understand what what a doctor of naturopathic medicine is? I certainly can, and I wish that it was a really simple answer. Um, but it, it's 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 more complex. You know, you you you, uh, you be careful what you ask, right? But yes, yeah. I'm certainly happy to 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 address that. It's 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 a it's an important subject, actually, um, especially for public safety yeah. um, and just public health in general. So absolutely, we can talk about that. Where, where, where did you do your schooling? I, I know I, I looked I, into it at one point. I know there were only a couple of schools at the time, but where, yeah, where, where so did you go? I went, I went to Bastyr University in Seattle. Gotcha. Um, yep. And, you know, just yesterday, there was an announcement that Bastyr University in Seattle, which also has a satellite campus in San Diego, which is, happens to be my hometown, uh, and National College of Naturopathic Medicine, I think that they call it National University, N-U-N-M, National College, which is in Portland, Oregon, okay. are merging. Just ah. the news yesterday. So those two schools, and I, I'm I'm actually quite honestly not sure how I feel about this. I think it's probably a good thing for the profession. Um, but yeah, those are the two, I think, biggest schools. Um, certainly the most well known, and they are merging as of yesterday. So <laughs> probably for financial reasons, I'm guessing, as a lot of schools yeah, are kind of going you know, the through announcement, a lot. The announcement was coded in all kinds of positivity, right? Like, yeah. you know, um, it sounds like, you know, this is you know, stronger together, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that was the marketing of it. Uh, I, I hope it's true. You know, I, yeah. I don't really know. I'm not uh, I'm not as dialed into the whole like institutional side of naturopathic medicine as I once was. But yeah. um, we'll be investigating again. The, the announcement of this merger just was yesterday. So we'll have to see what happens. So did, did you did you do an undergrad before you went, went there? 
I did. Yeah, I went to UCLA um, and I studied neurophysiology. Okay. Um, I'm I'm happy to share with you the the, the origin story there. How I went from like a, a kid who wanted to be a sports medicine doctor yeah. and orthopedist. I'm curious. Becoming. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, let's start there. So, um, yeah, I grew up in, in in sunny San Diego, California. I was like a rough and tumble kind of surfer, skater kid, mm-hmm. and um, broke lots of bones, lots of fractures, <laughs> sprains and strains. You know the deal. Like, yep, spent much yep. of my childhood in casts and braces of various sorts. Um, anyway, I took this idea that I wanted to be a doctor to UCLA, which is where I did my undergraduate um, studies in, in neurophysiology. And and at that time, my my dad was is a PhD in psychology and was was training medical residents at UCLA at the time in uh, in, in in psychology as relates to primary care medicine. So okay. I had kind of like maybe backstage access to a lot of doctors in the yeah. UCLA system at the time. Yeah. And they were all maybe surprisingly um, very discouraging of a career in medicine. They This is like hmm. almost 30 years ago now, 25 plus years ago, um, increasing influence of big insurance, increasing influence of big pharma, all the sort of things that have come to pass now that I think are really cr- crumbling our current healthcare system. Yeah. They were sort of predicting and saying like, I don't know if you want to go into that, you know? Yeah. Anyway, what's, what's a kid to do? I thought I was going to be a doctor. These guys I was taking their advice. Anyway, I took off for a year and um, I went traveling around, you know, wearing a backpack and sleeping on beaches and hitchhiking and that, that sort of thing. And on that trip, I, I wound up getting an infection on a blister that I had on my foot. It turned into cellulitis in my leg. And it was very, you know, very serious. Oh, yeah. problem. Cellulitis yeah. is a is a limb threatening, even life threatening problem. Anyway, yeah. I was I was in Switzerland at the time when this happened. Um, I got a prescription for antibiotics, which I needed, called into a pharmacy in Zurich, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And I went in there. And in there, I saw all this herbal stuff, right? Like, you know, homeopathics were in there. Yep. Tea, you know, all this natural medicine stuff, which is just part of routine primary care there, right? Like they they practice according to a, a ladder, a hierarchy of therapeutics that we would do well yep. to learn from here. Yep. And I needed my antibiotics. I got my antibiotics and and they cured my infection, which was great. But that experience in that pharmacy opened my eyes up to this world of natural medicine, especially the herbs, which, you know, lit a fire and a passion that's really like still burning now. Um, And so that's kind of my, that's my story. That's the origin story. I took that, you know, experience, learned about natural medicine, found out about naturopathic medicine that carried on my travels to all of the schools of, of naturopathic medicine in the country settled on Bastyr in Seattle, which is a wonderful place, um, and did my four-year naturopathic uh, doctorate there. Interesting. So that's the origin story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I have a little bit of a similar story as far as <clears throat> beating my body up in sports <laughs> being younger and then starting to have a lot of back problems in my teen years and, and got really bad in my 20s. So I kind of went that route too. But interestingly, like your you know, your, your point of view with, with Europe you know, the, the, my my field, craniosacral therapy, really was developed out of an old osteopathic tradition, which was developed in the United States, but then jumped to Europe and became very popular. So mm-hmm. they picked that up from us, and then it kind of disappeared from from you know our our approach to medicine for a long time. It's making a return. In fact, I think even a lot of chiropractors are being trained in these more subtle you know low force techniques. Yeah. Um, because it's safer, <laughs> for one thing. Yeah, <laughs> like sure. With, with you know liability and stuff, but also. So I think we're starting to learn a lot more about how the how the nervous system processes and you know how it's able to sort of you know work with that manual therapy. So yeah, yeah. that's 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 interesting. And and also also with with the the naturopathic approach, I I find especially from living in New York that people, you know, because it's such a melting pot there. I've worked with people from all over the place, and it seems like 
people from Europe, people from South America and a lot of kind of Caribbean islands and Africa and stuff all kind of, you know, grew up with these traditions of, of using herbal products. My wife's Russian as well. And her, and her family still uses all these things yeah. that, that are just kind of very basic household things. So I always think it's interesting to see, you know, how, how those things have disappeared from our culture. And, and I'm, I'm yeah. sure going back to the money-making part of it, there has just been so much money to make in, in this approach to, to that pharmaceutical care. Yeah. So was was that something that was, was was there something about that kind of care that, that that kind of went against your belief system? Is that is that why you kind of looked more to the to the herbal products? I think so. Yeah, you you bring up a bunch of really interesting points there. It's it, it is fascinating, right? That in the United States, there's this. I think it, I think of it kind of like a seduction of the new or the sexy, if you yeah, will. Oh, right? that's like, that's a great like, way to think about it. You yeah, know, it, and it's like there's a metaphor here. I, I think of sometimes in music where like you know, we have an evolution of the different products that we use to consume music. Like let's go vinyl records and then yeah. we go maybe eight tracks and then cassette tapes and then CDs. And now, you know, MP3s. Right. And in America, we have this idea that like, okay, the new thing comes out, let's just get rid of the old thing. Like I'm yeah. sure many of your listeners can relate to this. Like yeah. when did you get rid of your cassettes? When did you get rid of your CDs? Yeah. You know, we just get rid of the old one. Whereas in other places, almost everywhere else, yeah. there's like kind of remains an appreciation for the vinyl, for the eight track, for the cassette. Yeah. And and all that old stuff is still uh, you know uh, believed to be valuable. And here we like throw it away. And then like 50 years later, come back <laughs> to it. And so like, oh, wait, Vinyl records are actually cool, you know, like, and, and that's, that's, I think what's happening now yeah. with, with, with natural medicine, you know, whether it's craniosacral herbal medicine or otherwise, like this return to like, Oh wait, that old stuff, be it vital records or, or St. John's award is yeah. actually cool. It actually works. And like, now it's kind of retro. So, yeah. um, you know, it, and it wasn't for, for me, it wasn't necessarily like anything so negative about Western medicine. Um, although I did quite clearly appreciate way back in the day that like Western medicine was, uh, well, it's the dominant system here. There's plenty of practitioners of it. And I just felt like the, I guess one way to put it is that like, when you're thinking about a particular diagnosis, right? Any kind of problem, we could pick any problem in Western medicine, you arrive at that diagnosis and then the thinking kind of stops, right? There's a menu of options, usually yeah. drugs or surgery that are like that, 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 that flow out when, when one arrives at the diagnosis. And the way my brain works, the way I'm wired, I was much more inclined to ask more questions once the diagnosis yeah, me been too. established. So, you know, it's like, here's the diagnosis. And then the question is like, why, why do you have this? How did you wind up this way? It's like when the diagnosis is made, that's when the thinking really begins or takes off. Yeah. And that attracted me um, to, to naturopathic medicine alongside the attraction of just herbs and plants and, you know, the natural therapeutics. I'm a nature kind of guy. So, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, that's what set it off. And, and that's the art of medicine, right? I mean, it's, I, I think I have a good friend who is a doctor who is really frustrated with working within sy systemic care because they give him a tablet. He has to click boxes to get, you know, someone from one thing to the next. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes maybe they've already had a test that they're saying that they need to do again. And it's like, yeah. they, they just get so blockaded in all these different ways when really what he wants to do is ask questions find the simplest, you know, thing that doesn't need to be a more complex, you know, just, just because something hasn't, you know, uh, resolved quickly. That doesn't mean we need to just have to go to more complexity. There might just be one more simple thing to do, but the system doesn't always allow for that. So I, I, I kind of wonder how much, 
you know, we, 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 I mean, what, what you're doing, I think is, and what I'm doing is, is the, we're, we're getting people who are basically like losing faith in that, in that system approach because they know they're going to get listened to. They know they're going to, they're going to get the, you know, we're, we're going to listen to their whole story and try to get a sense of what's going on as a whole and continue to ask questions. Yeah. Whereas, as you're saying, if, if the questions stop at a certain point, obviously if, if I, if I have a compound fracture in my leg, I'm going to the hospital. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to, I, I, I know that that's where I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the, the kind of care that I need for that kind of thing. But when it comes to a lot of the more subtle things that are going on with people's bodies, and there's a lot that can go on where we, you know, where do you start in that process? And that's where I think it's important to come, you know, meet with somebody like you. Yeah. And, and yourself too. I mean, I think, and, and this shouldn't be really alternative, right? I mean, what we're talking about right. is just like this the is... humanity in it, right? The tools that we're using <laughs> and we can get specific about them for you, craniosacral or subtle body work type of techniques for me also using body work techniques as part of my practice, maybe a little bit more, um, uh, invasive or aggressive. You might call you might call it, yeah. but regardless of the tools, right? The herbs, the homeopathics, the acupuncture needle, the craniosacral techniques, it's like people that we're working with. And it reminds me of a story of a patient of mine who was kind of like a, a very mild, mannered, um, rather anxious woman who had a, a whole bunch of different medical problems. And she had waited for a long time to get an appointment with an endocrinologist, a specialist for, for, for a, a specific question that she had. And she waited for the appointment for months because, you know, they were booked out and then she got the appointment. And then once she got there, she waited for an hour because the doctor was late. And then once she got into the room, it was cold and she was uncomfortable. And the doctor came in like a whirlwind, right? Mm -hmm. With the, ch to check all the boxes and checked a bunch of boxes, adjusted a dose of a particular medication and then left. And she was kind of overwhelmed by this whole thing and didn't really even realize until she was checking out that she never got to ask the guy the question that she right. came in for. Right. Like the thing that she made the appointment for never came up. He never asked and he was gone. And yeah. she actually told me that she broke down in tears at the checkout desk. Like it was almost as if something horrible had happened or right. something sort of did. It wasn't a terrible diagnosis or anything. The front desk lady's like, what's wrong? And she's like, I came in here, I waited months, then I waited an hour and I was cold and I was scared and the whole thing. And I, I never even got to ask him what I came here for. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a problem. And I don't feel like I should be called a snake oil salesman or an alternative medicine quack just because right. I want to listen to the lady and, and, uh, and, and hear her actual uh, question. Hear you. You know? Yeah. 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 So, so what, did, what is it uh, in, in your, in your field? Um, what, what did you end up deciding to focus on? Was it, was there, was there a, a kind of a, a route that you ended up, you know, is, within the naturopathic training, do you, do you have kind of different options in terms of directions you can go in terms of your training? Yeah. So uh, naturopathic doctors, we, we, we joke and say sometimes if there's five naturopathic doctors in the room, you could get at least six or seven opinions out of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because we are so, um, eccentric and eclectic in the way that we approach things. Um, yeah, there's lots of different ways to sort of specialize. Um, and th there can be specialties in a modality. So there's naturopathic doctors that really focus on one kind of therapeutic tool, herbs, for example, nutrition, yeah. for example, yeah. body work, even craniosacral, yeah. or some people get dual trained in acupuncture. So that's a, that's what I would call a modality specific approach. Yeah. Uh, there's other people who, uh, who like specialize in a particular population demographic, pediatrics, geriatrics, gotcha. okay. women's health, et cetera. And then there's people who specialize in disease entities or body regions, you know, endocrine, GI, uh, these, these sorts of things. So for me, I, um, consider myself a generalist. I, um, again, just sort of the way I'm wired, um, yeah. 
could, couldn't ever see myself focusing on one narrow body area um, for my whole career. So in my practice, it would be, you know, a common problem in primary care, like cleaning earwax out of somebody's ears or somebody, something unglamorous like that. Um, and then the next patient would be a severe disabling autoimmune disease or something like that. So, um, kind of, you know, I, I suppose I could be accused of being, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's the, the jack of all trades and the master of none, uh, effect, but that's the way it worked for me. Um, over many, many years of practice, it became clear that a lot of people with orthopedic pain, mm-hmm. uh, musculoskeletal pain, um, you know, really benefited from my services. So that just sort of niched me down or niched me out into orthopedics and musculoskeletal yeah, pain. Yeah. Just by accident, right? Yeah. It just sort of happened that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so I didn't, I wouldn't have ever called myself a specialist, but I did see a lot, a lot of people, uh, do see a lot of people in my, in my practice with uh, orthopedic problems and musculoskeletal pain. Yeah. I, I think because of my, my, you know, back, back pain issues and trying to solve that for myself, I became much more interested in the nervous system, especially autonomic nervous system response to things, mm. which in some ways made me a generalist, right? Because I, I became, and I, and I went to, I'm, I'm also a massage therapist and I, I did. Uh, functional movement work and, and postural correction work as well. So kind of worked within, you know, that, that physical movement part of things and the, and the body work, which I liked that combination of things. I, those are my only tools to use, but I feel like in terms of toning the nervous system or, you know, creating a, a good base of strength or stability for somebody, I liked having the, the movement part. I don't do as much these days, but I did that. I did a lot of that for a long time. And, and I, I felt like that, that autonomic response you know, really ties into like endocrine system function and, you know, all sorts of other, you know, cellular activity that's happening because we stay in fight or flight states for too long. And it ends up being part of orthopedics. It ends up being part of pediatric care, you know, oddly enough, because babies who have had difficult deliveries also have a lot of GI and, you know, latching issues. And so that's, that was, that was kind of where my focus went. So in some ways it has allowed me to work within a number of different fields of care, and it, and, it, and, it gives, and it gives me perspective too. Yeah, and as well it should. I mean, I, I'm remembering now, we were talking about my schooling. It, it, this was at Bastyr. This is in, in the late 1990s. Um, I took a class and it was, it was a really, it was an epic class at the time, really forward thinking. And the class was called psycho neuroimmunology. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that was, that was really neat because it, it, it really encapsulated this idea that psycho, that's the psychological, psycho-emotional, neuro, yeah. the nervous system itself, yeah. and then the immune system, psychoneuroimmunology. I think that later that class became psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology because right. now the hormonal system's wrapped yes, in. Of course. And then and then you know, like we could add every ology <laughs> on there. Oh, totally. Right. And just make this the longest class name ever because holistic medicine, right? Like it's a that's the, it. The, none of these body systems exist. In a silo, they all—they're right. all interconnected. There's inputs and, and that affect us in positive or negative ways, and all these different biological inputs affect all of our body systems. So I think, yeah. you know, I mean, psycho, neuro, immuno, gastro, cardio, dermatologo. You know, right? Yes, yes. The, the, the name of that class could be uh, every ology, and, uh, <laughs> and that would sum it up, right? Which, which, you know, I think that's, that's something that we should be trained in just in, in, in general in medicine. And I, and I think the more siloed we get, you know, and, and there's, there's a place for the, those, those really highly specialized people as well. But I think they also need to be in this relationship with other people who are, who they're having conversations with that, are, that are among that chain of, of other things too. 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, the part of the thing that I think is so amazing about the work that you're doing, at least in, and I'm talking now about the podcast and reaching yeah. listeners in this way is because I think part of the responsibility for this revolution that you and I are trying to mount here, right? Yeah, There's yeah. people with us that, about kind of a, a, a refashioned version of, of what, what healthcare and medicine can be yeah. really rests with, with the patient, right? Because I think that Western medicine and that specialty care system, and you're right, like if you, I've sent people to specialists in thumbs, right? There's hand specialists, but they're yeah. over here, big tertiary care medical center down the road, thumb specialist. Yeah. If you have a thumb problem, it's amazing, right? Yeah. But you shouldn't think for a second that that thumb doctor um, should be the right person to ask questions about other other body parts, right? right. And so yeah. there's this, again, with this idea of the seduction, this Western medical system, big pharma, big surgery, medical devices, all that has kind of lulled, I think, the American public into the belief that that is the way, right? That that yeah. is the only way. And that like medical specialists are at the top of the game. They're the cream of the crop. They are the go-to people to consult about any health problem. T take, for example, let me just give you an example to illustrate my point. We diabetes, massively epidemic levels of of of, uh, of diabetes in this country. Yeah, and we have diabetologists now, um, and they're great. You know, they have their they're in their lane. You you would think that if you were an endocrinologist who had subspecialty training in diabetes, you were a diabetologist that you would know everything or have a commanding knowledge of everything mm -hmm. that could be used for the management of diabetes, right? But it turns out that that's not what a diabetologist is. They're an expert in the Western medical approach to diabetes. Yeah. Insulin pumps, all the different kinds of insulin, the medications, that's their lane. Yeah. They're not that great at diet. Some would argue they're terrible at it. Yeah. They know nothing about the herbal medicines and the nutritional approaches. They know right. nothing about yeah. autonomic nervous system responses and how that might impact blood sugar or yeah. stress. Yeah. So it's not really a diabetologist. It's it's a Western medical specialist who's used that narrow lane. And And I think that the American public thinks that just because a person went to Harvard or Yale or whatever and studied diabetes, that they know everything about diabetes. Right. Then why don't they know about berberine? Berberine is a very useful blood sugar modulating herb. Yeah. Most diabetologists in Western medicine know nothing about it. They've never heard about it. So how could they call themselves a comprehensive expert? That's that's the and that's on us to educate people about that. I think. Yeah, and and I and I think it's on them a little bit too. I mean, this is one of the things that I I'm very fortunate that I I think what people tend to come to me, you know, if they're coming to me for regular care, and a lot of times I, you know, part of the reason I, I travel for work, you know, still is because that these are people that I've probably been treating, you know, a, a good chunk of them for 20 years or more. So yeah. they're they're they they trust my my network and my instinct about things, and sometimes it's just. If something, if if I see something different that I haven't seen before, or they come to me with a new symptom that I think is potentially going to cause some problems, I'll try to find a, a referral for them. And, and and part of it is, especially with you know trying to find a mental health person or some someone that's like a good physical therapist or you know something that's more specialized, it's it's hard to find those people on your own and just go on your network list and just you know point are, point yeah. at a name. So this is kind of where I, I also feel like you and I come in, but also where I think. And, and I'm, I have quite a few people who are in, in allopathic care who who also trust me, you know. So the, I have I can text somebody in a, in a couple minutes and be like, I, I have a person. I'm wondering if if you can see them or if you have an idea of, of who they should go see or how soon they can get in to see somebody for this or which urgent yeah. care to go to. Those are those are kind of important leads to have. And, and unfortunately. There's this there's this barrier that happens once you're within a, a system uh, you know system approach to care, and and I think, 
you know, if 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 we could be brought in to to this, you know, bigger bigger umbrella, we we could actually funnel things a lot faster and probably even treat things on the on the front end to 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 because the sooner you get these things treated, the 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 less impact is going to have long term and the and the better the health outcomes. But we just don't get we don't get brought in. We're usually we're usually last on the list most of the time, right? They've been through everything yeah. else, and then they kind of end up on our office because somebody told them about us. Yep, absolutely. It's true. It's sad. And, and you're right that it is on them to some extent, too, for, you know, the, the Western medical system that is for just b believing or drinking that same Kool-Aid that like Western medicine is where it's at. And it's yeah. the only thing, you know, I think there's I, I'm noticing because I've had a, a lot of experience over the last decade or so training preceptoring really um, medical residents from Yale. So Yale's oh, right, right down yeah, the road yeah. here. And yeah. I, I have a lot of you know, my my whole neighborhood is filled with Yale doctors. Um, many of whom, just because of our interpersonal relationships, have, have have learned about what natural medicine, naturopathic medicine is. Do, do you treat and, a lot of them? Yeah. The, oh, I have lots of doctors that come in. Yeah, yeah, I figured. I mean, my, yeah. I would say probably twenty five percent of my my clientele is you know someone in the medical profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Medical professionals for sure. I think that that's a that's always an interesting little irony, right? They come in and they uh, they don't want to do what the primary care doctors do. They don't want they don't want to see themselves, right? Um, <laughs> right. They, uh, they want to avoid the drugs. They want to avoid the the bigger interventions. Yeah. Um, but yes, lots of medical professionals, um, conventional medical professionals, come into practice for sure. Yeah, and um, and and I do think that like there is. I mean, I, I've been in, in, in this field for 25 years. I, I think that it's the, the pendulum is swinging, right? The mm -hmm. younger doctors have a more appreciation for it. Um, I think there's increasing dissatisfaction with Western medicine, the way that it's currently practiced, the pricing, you yeah. know, the insurance, all that sort of stuff, the heavy dependence on drugs. And I think like, as we see things like organic foods and, you know, regenerative agriculture and, you know, non-toxic sunscreens showing up in people's lives, you know, that shows me that like, wow, that's different really didn't even exist. It was like a fringe movement 25 years ago yeah. and now is, is becoming mainstream. And I think that's a great thing. And I, I see that happening as well yeah. in, in healthcare. And I, th I think because our demographic is probably smaller and our, our subset that we tend to work with, I mean, are usually people who who can afford to come see us. I mean, that's the, uh, the unfortunate thing. But because of that, we end up working with like I, I feel like my my practice has become almost like small town medicine because I even even though I'm going to New York, you know my my community is is fairly small, and yeah. and I've and there are people I've been treating for a long time, and because I treat from you know newborns, I have a lot of newborns now that I treated who still have come to see me on and off for different kinds of things when they're kids and teenagers, or they might be you know on on the spectrum or have a lot of pro sensory processing stuff. I see them you know through into their teen years, and and so having having that experience now, I, I you know, I, I can see how we we could be smaller in the way that we sort of work with communities. But but the unfortunate part of it is that we can't really cut too much out of what we what we're charging because we are so small. You know, we we're reliant on everyone coming up, coming and showing up to their appointments, and we can only see a certain number of people a day. And I don't know how about you, but I see people most of the time for minimally a half hour and most of the time an hour or more. Yeah, yeah, and and naturopathic medicine, and we can talk more specifically about this, is a unique case. Um, well, I, I, as I said, I'm I'm here in Connecticut, so in nature in in Connecticut, my state, uh, naturopathic doctors are licensed and regulated by the state, um, are considered. Um, not, not exactly for insurance purposes, primary care providers, but we're considered physicians by the state. And we've had a lot of 
um, legislative challenges in that regard. But we've been a licensed profession for uh, over a hundred years, actually, right, in this right. in this state. Um, naturopathic medicine in Connecticut. Connecticut's the, the the state slogan is the land of steady habits. So we never got rid of the vinyl records here. The naturopathic licensing <laughs> yeah, yeah. law is still on the books. But what that means for us here, which is different, by the way, in New York and other states, is that we take insurance. So uh, the doctors at my oh, practice nice. all, all accept insurance. So we you know we are considered specialists by the insurance specialists in okay. naturopathic medicine. So people come in, they pay a copay. We do reimbursement. You know the the, the usual kind of doctor's office sort of thing. So our field is 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 unique in that way. But that very much depends on where in the country you are. So right. that same situation exists in Washington, in Oregon, um, in California, some unusual exceptions. But mostly, and this is maybe not any big surprise, most of the blue states have naturopathic licensing ah, laws interesting. Um, in the books. And in many cases there, you have naturopathic doctors who... Yeah, accept insurance just like a just like a a, a specialist would, um, and then in other states where the practice of naturopathic medicine is not regulated by the state, you have a more self pay situation okay. like like your practice. Gotcha. Yeah, oh, that's and that's a game changer, right? That that yeah. that increases access immensely. Yeah. So, so do do people come to see you as they would a, a primary care? Then, I mean, is that is that kind of do you have a, a big population of that, or are you are you seeing more people for kind of you know specific recovery type care? Um, both, right? Again, this jack of all trades thing. In, yeah. in my practice, there are lots of people who come in and use me and the rest of the doctors in my group um, as their primary as the and by primary i mean the first person that they go to when they have a problem right so yeah. that's one way you know primary care physician pcp is really an insurance designation okay. um, and involves having hospital privileges and being on call and stuff like that so for insurance purposes no we're not primary care doctors but in the eyes of our patients we very often are and yeah. by that i mean we are the first people that they call when they have a rash when something hurts you know, we might order an x-ray or an MRI or get blood work or yeah. send them to a specialist or something like that. Um, and then, yeah, and then we, so we have many people like that. And those are people who, t who are kind of cut from the same cloth like you and I are, right? Yeah. Like they yeah. already kind of eat organic food and they care about their health and, you know, th that sort of thing. Yeah. And then we have people that are on the opposite end of that, right? That are just, they've been through the ringer. They've had multiple surgeries. They have to take tons of medications. Yeah. Whatever they've been doing isn't working. Someone said, oh, you should go see a naturopath and maybe yeah. give them my name, another doctor in my practice. And then here they come just a train wreck, you know, on 15 different medications. And, right. you know, we're just trying to, you know, sort all that out. So yeah, it's, it's, it's across the spectrum. Very interesting work. And, and do you have something that you prefer to, I mean, are there, are there things that you really love treating that you feel like have become kind of your subspecialties? I think if there's, if there's any one sort of body system, um, it's, it's, it's the musculoskeletal system. It's orthopedics. Um, huh. that, that is a big area. I would, I would, I would probably put GI as a secondary okay. uh, area there too, because there's just so, so common, uh, so many common complaints and there's a lot of interface there. Um, and then both of those are very intimately twisted up with the psycho-emotional piece. Oh, so yeah. I really, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, if I had a specialty area or kind of a favorite type of patient to see, it would be somebody who has orthopedic or musculoskeletal pain, gastrointestinal problems, and then all of the psycho-emotional stuff that either uh, is, you know, inputs onto those problems or is part of the output from those problems. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. With, with the orthopedic stuff, do you, are they people who tend to be 
kind of on the healthier side and are trying to do something physically, a, you know, a sport or an activity that they're being limited by? Is that, does that tend to be your population? No, I would say, you know, I, I've, I've often said that I, I love the idea that, that patients would come and see me and say, Doc, like, I'm doing great and I just right. want to keep it that way, you know, or like I want to be able to run faster yeah. or something like that. But it turns out that on the ground, in in reality, the people that come in are people who are suffering in some, yeah. In yeah. some way or another, um, usually with pain that might be disabling or maybe a, a serious autoimmune disease, you know, something that is crippling them and making life not livable in the way that they want to live it. And that's what they're coming in for. Yeah. As again, I love the idea of uh, uh, preventative medicine yeah, me in that too. way, but that, that's just not <laughs> that's just not what people actually come in for. Um, and uh, they come in hurting, and they they want to get out of pain. And I think that the the approach that I've developed, you know, over just just born of witnessing patterns in in, in yeah, people who are suffering absolutely. in this way over yeah. many many years, has has you know has helped people, and uh, and that 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 translates. Yeah. Um, so, and, and do I gather that you're also starting to create some kind of products as well around, uh, around what you're doing with naturopathic medicine? Yeah. So I, again, I've been in practice for 20 plus years and, and, um, I started my practice with the idea that I wanted to be a busy naturopathic doctor who owned a multi-doctor clinic. And that's, that was the goal. Yeah. And then I'm really grateful and proud that it didn't take too long to achieve that goal, right? Like, a, yeah busy practice, multiple doctors, grateful patients, the whole thing. And um, as a busy minded individual, you know, I just sort of felt like I was bumping up against some limitations. My practice was booked out. Um, I couldn't see any more patients. Otherwise yeah, yeah. I'd run the risk of burning myself out. I didn't love the idea of like opening up more and more clinics and hiring more and more doctors. And so I just kind of wanted to expand my reach. And so that's when I started like creating content. This is probably about 10 years ago online and various forms, writing, and then that parlayed that into creating products. And yeah, now um, I am the co-founder and the medical director of a, of a company, a products-based company called Up Wellness, which is named after an oceanographic, a surfing phenomenon. I told you I'm a surfer. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, and we make we make products. Our flagship product is is um, called Golden Revive Plus, and it's, it's based on the herbal formulations that I would use in my practice. Um, and that, that approach to musculoskeletal pain. Of course, this is this is herbal medicine for the masses, right? This is very different than than uh, than treating an individual person. You're but right. there are some patterns that um, yeah. that are pretty predictable, and there's some approaches, and we can talk about that more specifically. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, to, I'm curious to see to hear what yeah. kinds of because I think again there are there are some general things that I think we 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 know from these kinds of patterns. I'm I'm the I'm same as you. I'm always looking yeah. for. What what that what that is and and what you can sort of build into your into your work like for movement work for me, I think most people need to learn how to stabilize their trunk and their shoulders. Mm -hmm. Once once they know how to do that, they can they can you know build their body and develop fitness. It gets skipped in just about every exercise program that I see. <laughs> so yeah. you know that's that's kind of my approach. But so so from a from a a function man, I guess this is not exactly functional medicine, but from a naturopathic medicine standpoint, what what are those kinds of things that we could all probably use support with? Yeah, so that I think that's a great question, and that what when when people have musculoskeletal pain, and, and and that means they probably have a diagnosis of like arthritis somewhere, or maybe it's just a pain syndrome in their back or their neck or their shoulder, whatever the case may be. In many cases, these people have been diagnosed with something structural that is visible on an X-ray or an MRI like arthritis or a bone spur or a okay. meniscus tear in a knee or a labral tear in a hip yeah. or a bulging disc in the spine, right? This is extremely common. And, and, and one of the things that I've 
learned, and I know that you know this too, is that what we see on those images is only part of the story. In fact, those images are very often very misleading and lead to all kinds of unnecessary or inappropriate interventions, including surgery. And so it's really important for people to understand that just because you have a lumbar disc herniation, a bulging disc in your back or neck, or a meniscus tear in your knee, that does not mean that you will have pain. There are lots of people who have bulging discs and meniscus tears who have no pain at all. There's lots of people who have degenerative arthritis in any number of different joints who have no pain at all. But as soon as we see it on an MRI or an X-ray, we get all excited and say, oh, you need surgery, you need arthroscopic, whatever, right? So it it begs the question, I'm just sort of rephrasing your question, well, then what is it, right? If it's Mm -hmm. not the disc that hurts, if it's not the meniscus that hurts, what is making my knee or my back hurt? And the there's there's I, I'd say I put in four buckets um, and and let, let's talk about each one. The first one is excessive inflammation, more inflammation than yeah. there should be yeah. given the stimulus. And I think it's really important to call it excessive inflammation because people think inflammation is just bad. We should just stomp it out and put out that fire, but right. you can't. Inflammation is necessary. It's yeah. a biological imperative. So yeah. more inflammation than you should have based on whatever the stimulus is. That's one problem number one. Problem number two is some kind of muscular imbalance, often a strength to flexibility ratio imbalance. You probably have another name for that, but too much tension or not enough, something like that, you know? We we call it tone. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, one of the problems I found that I had myself was that I'm, I'm, I have a ligament laxity issue. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's a, it's congenital and it, it, it tends to be in certain populations of like Northern Europeans, <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's one of those things. So if you meet a, a dancer, ex- exactly. I mean, I'm just, I'm just completely gummy. I mean, my, my, we, yeah, we, we could do some finger tricks right now. I have it too. So, um, so, so you know, with it. that's, that's, that, that's a, that's a pretty common thing that I, that I see in my practice, but yeah, I mean, t- tone is definitely one of them. Absolutely. And in, 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 in your case, this, this is a, a great point that you brought up. If you have ligament laxity and those joints are, are basically unstable as a yeah. result of that, then the, the stability needs to come from somewhere. If you don't have joint stability, you run the risk of actually having a more serious injury, right? You can't yeah. have your bones slipping like that. And if they, if they are slipping or if there's a sense that there's instability, your brain and your body will react in such a way to try to stabilize that. Much yeah. in the same way that an orthopedist would stabilize a fracture with a splint. So yeah. you'll, you'll put on a splint you know, of muscle tension or trigger points in various areas and that splint will provide some stability. But if you have sufficient strength, core stability or stability in the, in the, in strength in the muscles around that joint, a lot of times that split can, you can loosen the Velcro on it, right? A little bit. So, so I think that's where I, I, I find that a lot of people have excessively tense or tight or spasmodic musculature, which is a, a big driver for pain. But the reason for that is because they had underlying instability and then subsequent muscle spasms as a result. So when right. you apply added strength and core stability, they can relax and, right. and not be as unstable. So that's, that's I think, bucket number two. We had excessive inflammation and then muscle tension. Yeah. And then another one I'm sure you're well acquainted with as a craniosacral practitioner is fibrosis, right? right. Uh, either micro or macroscopic accumulation of scar tissue or fibrin. Yeah in the fascia, in the muscles, in and around the joints itself. And that can restrict blood flow, that can restrict uh, you know, range of motion, it can entrap nerves and cause all kinds of problems as well. Yeah. That would be bucket number three. Um, and then bucket number four is, we alluded to this before, is, is just psycho-emotional, right? The stories that we tell ourselves about 
this pain, yeah. you know, what it means for our future, what, it, you know, what, where it stems from all of that stuff that is unique to each individual. It's, it's very hard to bottle up to create a formula that, that, that encapsulates that. I think right. the first three buckets I can cover pretty well with herbs and nutrients. That last one is, is, is tricky. But, but I imagine you have to, you have to include something that does uh, affect that, that autonomic nervous system, right? Because in, inflammation is one of those things, like, as you're saying, we need it. It kind of, you know, when we mm -hmm. have an acute injury, it kind of casts that area so we don't use it right it kind of tells us like don't move this joint yeah. and but too, obviously too much of it or excessive um you know inflammation that doesn't that doesn't stop you know being produced and and we know that to some extent that's also due to that sympathetic fight or flight response that the body is overreacting to all sorts of things right it can overreact with histamine inflammation lots of stuff so that's that's another part of this and 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 you know with my system my, the craniosacral system i like to try to remind people is really that it's the dural membrane system right that houses the nervous system but it's really connected more broadly to our whole fascial system our connective tissue system so because it's innervated it is also going to react to our different states and and so this is one of those things when there is an injury cycle happening, especially if it happens during like an incredibly stressful time period or where you, there have been a prolonged you know, stressor for you or a childhood trauma or something, our, our body's tendency to sort of go into those states is, is, is elevated as well. So yeah. this is where I think some supplemental st support, uh, something like, I don't, I don't know what it is in your field, but I know like ashwagandha gets used a lot of times because it does bring some of that down. I don't know if that's, if that's one of your herbs, but. Yes, <laughs> use it regularly and it's in many of my formulas you just reminded me too and I, I, you've probably had this experience as well when you when you as a practitioner i know it's happened to me many many times uh, you know apply a release technique whatever that release technique yeah. may be it may be a craniosacral technique it could be acupuncture it could be a, a chiropractic type of a type of adjustment or a deep myofascial release a lot of times those emotional things are are kind of I don't know, poetically wrapped up in that in Absolutely. that complex, right? And so I've seen it countless times where yeah. I'm like working on an area, allowing that physical, very physical release to occur. Yeah. And then a person has an emotional release, which can be all over the map. Sometimes yeah. it's laughter, sometimes it's tears, sometimes exactly. it's fear. Um, and, yeah, we're and trained. Like, we're trained in working with all that stuff too. So we do a lot of dialoguing work around that, trying to trying yeah. to get a sense of what this may be related to, so that we can also kind of document it too. So we know later yeah. on, like in this part of the body, this came up. We, that's that's an yeah. important bit, bit of information for us. Absolutely, and that's a very very real effect. And then and then yeah, the, these these herbal things you mentioned ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is a is a prototypical adaptogenic herb, and it, and it's 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 you you we we've, we've probably heard this word adaptogens. It's it's really interesting actually. The the term is I don't know. It's a little nerdy, you know. Um, what does it really mean? It helps the body adapt to stressful situations. Yeah. I, I think you know, there's something cosmically cool about a lot of these adaptogens, including ashwagandha, but yeah. the list goes on. Rhodiola, Eleutherococcus. Um, it, many of these plants grow in stressful environmental conditions, right? Um, and so, like, it might be very cold or it might be very dry, you oh, know, stressful environmental conditions. And so when a plant is is in a stressful environmental condition, it, it can't like go get a sweater, you know, yeah. or like go move somewhere warmer or get water. You know, it has to deal with that. And it deals with that through chemistry, right? right? This biochemistry, phytochemistry, plant chemistry. And it turns out, and this is the magic of adaptogens, that the many of the very same compounds, right? The salidrocytes in rhodiola, all these 
terpenes and whatnot, all these bio, yeah. phytochemicals inside plants that allow plants to survive in stressful conditions have a parallel effect in humans, allowing humans to also tolerate stressful conditions better. Yeah. Maybe it's cold or altitude or, you know, th- you know, dehydration or these sorts of things. So it's a, ma- I think it's really magical in that way that adaptogenic herbs, you know, have been evolved under stressful conditions and they are there for us. The chem- chemicals in those plants allow us to better adapt to stressful situations as well. And um, we use them regularly in, in clinical practice for exactly that reason. So so to, to, to dork out for just a, a second on this chemical process, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I, I have to always go here. But so so th- that I, I'm, that's a really curious thing. But the, if these plants are are learning, right, there's there's an intelligence that they've learned over a, a long period of time. Yeah. When, when, when we introduce them to our system, is th- is there sort of a is there sort of a chemical, you know, education that goes on with our cells? I mean, how, how does that work? I love this geeking out, by the way. <laughs> this is great. I mean, this is just, I didn't expect it and I'm thrilled, right? Um, so the, I, I think there, the answer is yes, that there is there is a relationship that we have with these plants. Um, and I think, but it's a, it's a cautious yes, because we don't always know the exact nature of the right, receptor right. Um, and the ligand interaction, but there's, there's, there's many examples of this. Um, and, and some of the, some of the biggest research in this area, although it's not a prototypical adaptogen is, is happening with cannabinoids from cannabis, right? right this is a right. plant, a plant also, it's a plant medicine. I'm not into like getting into talking about 420 and all that stuff, but yeah. like to me, cannabis is just an herbal medicine, just like yeah. ashwagandha, yeah. just like chamomile, right? And and but it, it it turns out that because of its psychoactive effects, it's become um, you know people get really into it, right? right. We've really studied it a lot. We grow it really these special and unique ways, and we've learned a lot about the 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 cannabinoids themselves, all the different cannabinoids and the way they interact with our receptors in our brain. Right. And it turns out that there are specific receptors in our brains and in our nervous system. In, in fact, we have a, the system called the endocannabinoid system, the ECS, right. that is specific for the compounds in that plant. Right. So if if we have receptors in our system that are expressed by proteins in our, you know, mediated by our own DNA for a specific compound cannabinoids inside of a plant, that means that us and that plant have been hanging out together for a very long time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I have every reason to believe that that same situation applies to ashwagandha, rhodiola, all the other plants. That's that we're what talking I was about. wondering. That's cool. Yeah. 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 And, and there is, there is evidence. I mean, we, as, as we dig deep into the data of, of turmeric, for example, or many of the adaptive turmeric also has adaptogenic effects as well. We see that, yes, these things bind to very specific receptors with very specific and predictable outcomes. Um, and so, yeah, we have been hanging out with these plants for a really, really, really long time. And that which they have learned, and I put that in quotes, air quotes, um, does seem to convey to us in many cases, making them just you know, beautifully well-tolerated medicines. Right, right. Yeah. And and it's interesting too, because I so I just had a conversation for, for the podcast n- not too long ago about some of the uh, products that are being developed around uh, that are that are NA non-alcoholic products, and we're starting to include a lot of these adaptogens and and things into those. You know, and it, to to me it makes sense. I mean, what what people are oftentimes seeking, and I think people are now, of course, because. I don't know if it's it's legal in Connecticut, but it's become legal in Minnesota. It's become legal in a, a number of places. Cannabis is basically kind of getting, 
used in a way that I, I don't agree with because because of the, because of the quality of the product for one thing and also yeah. because of of the dosages people just have no idea what they're what what combination of cbd to thc and and what you know what strains and what kinds of things you're using we really yeah. do need better guidance with that but i think there there's there's a there's a space wide open right now to fill in for where where alcohol has filled in again where i think we're trying to use these different substances a lot of times to to do something to our autonomic nervous system right we're yeah. we're we're trying to we're trying to bring back that balance for ourselves and obviously these things can get abused but i but i, I feel like there is a, a wide open space for the adaptogens in the in in that market too a hundred percent. Yeah, we're seeing a lot. I'm seeing this a lot too. Even uh, one of the big ones that's making a uh, making itself known now is kava. Piper methysticum yeah. is the name of the yeah. plant. Um, you know, traditionally used in 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 the Polynesian islands as a social lubricant. Kind of has alcohol-like effects, calming anxiety, improving sort of sociability. And yeah. now we're seeing kava products, kava bars showing up all over the place. Um, and so yeah, there is there. And, and yes, you're right. People are seeking um they're seeking something and they're starting to understand that maybe the things that we've used traditionally maybe uh like alcohol and other substances are maybe not the best choice um, and yes it's wide open but there's also I think there needs to be a certain respect, right, for the for the traditional use of these plants. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I mean, I'm in I'm in a unique position because as a formulator and a medical director of a, of a nutritional and herbal supplement company, you know, part of me looks at these herbs in their traditional uses, right? In the way that the herbal medicine men and women, you know, um, use them traditionally, you know, mm -hmm. often whole plant extracts used as teas, you know, root, stem, leaf, berry, the whole thing. And then you compare that against the high scientific version where we take the root, for example, of a plant, extract out the so-called active ingredient, concentrate right, exactly. it, and then deliver it as a pharmaceutical effect. And I think that like, there's there's a place for both of those, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a place for that traditional use, that sort of more gentle of the earth use of the herb. Um, and then there is also a place for herbal medicine in a more high-tech, sci-fi kind of way. And I think they, bo they both fit into what I call a hierarchy of therapeutics, right? Like mm, the, the yeah, lowest yeah. rung, the lowest rung would be like movement and diet and good sleep and you know that kind of stuff right, like right, low right. rung interventions and then move up from there to like tea you know this is traditional use use yeah, herbal medicines yeah. or vitamins or minerals yeah. then up from there to maybe more concentrated pharmaceutical doses or extracts and then up from there and and we could keep on going up all the way to a hip replacement surgery right about right, about right. as invasive as it gets right and in my view all of those things are medicine, right? Yeah, yeah. But they should just be used in a methodical way as long as, you know, as long as you don't have a compound fracture and you need the, the, right. the surgery right away, right? right? So that's that's my, my take on it. Right. And, and, but when I got into my field 25 years ago, I saw... S Everybody was getting a laminectomy all of a sudden, right? We went from yeah. we we didn't we didn't start at the base with some movement and some things. We just jumped right to right. surgery. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, and it's amazing because like and 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 they're still getting lots of unnecessary laminectomies. By the I way, know, I know. Uh, and they've added the microdiscectomy to it, and you know it's it's really intense. And and I I mean I talk about this all the time the the rampant practice of unnecessary and inappropriate surgery. Yeah. And it's really it's like a lightning rod, you know, because it it's there's a there's one whole one group of people who are like 
go doctor, you know, stick it to them. You know, they're doing unnecessary surgery, big pharma, blah, 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 right? Like, right, you right. know, they're after the money. And, um, and, and it's, it's true that there are hundreds of thousands of unnecessary surgeries performed in this country every year on spines, necks and backs, yeah. on knees and hips as well. Yeah. And there's been lots of studies. This isn't a naturopathic medicine thing. This is just yeah. a scientific, well-validated fact. Yeah. But then there's also people who are like, I had a back surgery or a hip surgery and it was the best thing I ever did in my life, yep. you know? And, and where I'm coming from is look, both of those things can be true. Yeah. You know, you can have a great surgical outcome and a perfectly appropriate surgery. That's almost miraculous what we can do now. And that same surgeon can be doing hundreds or even thousands of unnecessary procedures per year. Absolutely. Both of those things can be true and they both are. Yeah. And, and, and what I try to remind people too, because I get a lot of people who are like on the fence about whether they should do surgery or they've, they've been given a diagnosis and not sure what to do. There's a lot of room within movement and physical therapy to test that and to see if, if you can, you know, manage to get out of this situation without it. And worst case scenario, you still go to surgery and you've basically, you've, you've improved your potential health outcome because going straight from having back pain into surgery is not going to necessarily solve the problem because usually there's a lot of neuromuscular imbalance going on in the system, not to mention stress triggers and all these other things that are probably, you know, contributing yep. to it. So I, I always try to lead people into like, so let's, let, let's start building a lifestyle part for you, you know, before you decide to do that. And maybe, maybe at the end of the day, and sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll work with somebody for 10 years with a cranky hip that, you know, it was bad when they came to see me. We got, we got it better for a while. And then the de degeneration is just too bad. 10 years later, they end up having to have hip replacement, but they've done so much work that they're, they, you know, a month later, they're walking around almost normal again. Their, right. their muscles are, are, are strong and, you know, prepared for that kind of shift to happen too. So. Yeah. Yeah. They did, they did <clears throat> prehab, we call it, right? That's and, exactly. Uh, and, and they also did something more than just the physical prehab. They did the hard work and now they can go into that surgery feeling confident that they exhausted their other options before, because I'm sure a lot of these people require quite a bit of, um, like, I, I don't know what to call it, handholding or emotional support, because many of these folks, especially in the alternative medicine world, they're really scared of surgery. That's part of the yeah. reason why they came to you or me is that they don't really want that. And then if it becomes clear after working up those other rungs of the ladder yeah. that surgery is something they need to do then then it's really important for them to be able to go into a procedure like that feeling confident that they did everything else that they needed to do they're appropriately pre prehabilitated totally. right yeah. um, and that they're going to go in there confident that they're going to have a good outcome and i've 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 walked many many people down that path over the years and look a well done surgery and competent hands in the right patient population who's an appropriate candidate for that surgery, it can be a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we should be thankful that we have it. We should just shouldn't overuse it and right. respect its power as a, as a, as a tool. Right. That's and, where we've gone astray. And, and a lot of that is, is, you know, I, th I think, and this is, I'm sure you do a lot of this too, is that people feel disempowered though, you know, they, or they have been by, by the system or just by the, by not being educated, you know, you know, or yeah. it, it, it should be, it should be something that we learn a lot more about, which is part of my doing these podcasts too. I think people can get these concepts. This is not, this is not so challenging most of the time, but I feel like that's, that's kind of where we need to start with this is really saying, I want to understand how to take care of 
of my body. This is this is all I have, and yeah. I, I just want to be able to go and do all the things that I want to do without being hindered by, you know, physical problems or pain or anything. So yeah. that's 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 where I'm always trying to like encourage people. It's it, it's it's such important work, and 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 it is true. It's an education piece, and I think a lot of people, you know, going back to the example we we used earlier, where I, I I've seen this so many times. It's 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 really such a compelling story where a person has a pain in one knee, let's say. Yeah. And we will often, an orthopedist will often get x-rays of both knees in that situation just to establish a baseline. So let's say the right knee hurts and then we get x-rays of both knees. And often what we see in that situation is that both knees look equally bad, right? right? Like there's arthritis right. or something, some kind of meniscus, whatever it is, that's bad on both sides. But again, only the right knee hurts. In that situation, in a conventional orthopedic office, very often that right knee will become a candidate for surgery. Yeah. They'll want to do an arthroscopic debridement of the meniscus. They might want to replace the joint. But the question in the patient, or, your, or even if this has ever been an issue for any of your listeners, is like, why doesn't the left knee hurt if it looks just as bad as the right one? Exactly. You know? exactly. Um, because it can't be what we're seeing on that x-ray. And I yeah. think it's a disservice to the patient when an orthopedist says, see, we see it on the x-ray and yeah. not address the elephant in the room, which is that why doesn't the other one hurt? They might just say, oh, I don't know why it doesn't hurt. I'm not sure. You know, But there are some real questions there. Hopefully we in our conversation got to the root of some of those questions because that's where the answer lies that 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 drives the pain and can yeah. very often, very often eliminate the need for those surgeries. Yeah. So that's. Yeah. And I think we just, j just quickly on that, we, we, we've gotten to a point now where the patient's expecting an answer so much so that the, that the physician feels like they need to give them something, you know, to, to give them something solid. And I think you and I probably exist a little bit more in this area of, I don't know exactly but we're going to, we're going to figure it out, you know, yeah. and, and I, and, and we shouldn't be able to, I mean, I, I think most problems are not things that you can figure out almost Im immediately. And this is, this is one of those things. I, I have one more topic if we, I know you probably have to go sh shortly, but there's one more thing that I feel like sort of relates to this, that I, that I've been wanting to ask somebody like you for a while. So I feel like what, one of the things I'm seeing in my office right now is challenges with fatigue. And I have a feeling this may relate to some of the product stuff that you have too, but I feel like it's, you know, th again, this, 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 this struggle with fatigue a lot of times is there's not going to be one single, uh, I'm not going to, you're not going to be able to do some testing on me and say, oh, we found one thing, you're short on this and here you go and you're done. There's usually- I love it when that happens. I love it when that happens. <laughs> it's happened like twice in the last 25 years. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so, you know, we're, we're, we're looking to build up this base as, as you, you know, we kind of keep talking about. And are, are there things that you're seeing, I guess, and I, I think I think some of this fatigue is coming from, you know, three years of, of you know, the, the, that we went through with the pandemic and recovery and a lot of, you know, social and economic, you know, challenges for people. Is, is there, and, and, and just kind of the, the way that that taxes our system, is, are there things that you're, that you're starting to use more that are, or is, is this something you're seeing in your, in your practice as well? And, and, and are there things that we can kind of build that base back up with? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. I'm definitely seeing it. I think anybody who's in healthcare is, is seeing this. Anybody who's on the planet is seeing it and yeah. feeling it themselves. And I, I think 
as you know, and you're right. It's always multifactorial. It's it's great when it's just B12 deficiency, and you can just give them some <laughs> right. B12 and solve that problem. Uh, or it's like maybe even sleep apnea or something like that. You mm-hmm. can hopefully try to correct that, you know. But um, people are tired and exhausted for all sorts of different reasons. And um, th- yes, there's many, many inputs that 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 can affect a person's energy levels or the charge that they have in their battery. Um, I think one of the main places to look um, is the HPAT axis, right? The hypothalamic, pituitary, mm-hmm. adrenal, and thyroid axis. This is the endocrine part of that psychoneuroendocrine. Yep. Uh, immunoendocrinology piece um, because, you know, the the inputs that are coming in, th- that is the psychoemotional stresses, that is the poor diets, that is the uh, toxic exposures, environmental exposures, all these kinds of things can damage the uh, energy production capacity of our cells, which is from our mitochondria. Mm-hmm. And then when those mitochondria fail to produce sufficient ATP, which is our cellular energy, you know, we see all kinds of problems um, emerge, including uh, issues with balance and modulation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, right? The adrenal gland is in overdrive, cortisol stresses, we can get into the hormonal stuff another another day. Yeah, yeah. but, But I think that's the place where I look first. And it's interesting that you brought up the adaptogens earlier, because I think that this now, this time is is the time for adaptogens. I think yeah. these are the plants that are here. I mean, this sounds cosmic and, you know, woo-woo, and I'm totally okay with that, by yeah, the way, yeah, yeah. Um, that these plants are here for us, you know, yeah. and uh, right now is the time when we need adaptogens more than we've ever needed them before because they help to bring some balance back into that system that is so grossly out of balance. Yeah, yeah, because there's there, there, we're... We can we can work on all the base things, you know. We know that sleep and diet and all those things are, are helpful. But I, I find even people who I feel like they're doing really pretty well with those things, they're still struggling to get that base back up. Yeah. So that's 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 a good job. Yeah. And and and, and, and I, I I have to point out too that for a lot of these people, you know, even if it's not really obvious or on the surface, there's a psychoemotional piece as well, right. which is usually, I mean, for for lack of better terms, it's usually some component of depression and or anxiety that are on top of that. Um, And listen, there's lots of things to be depressed and or anxious about these days. Um, Certainly what we've just been through and the state of the world and whatever, you know, so, um, and it's not always so obvious and on the surface like that, but I I would say that almost always in a fatigued person, when we start to kind of get into it, we can find that there is some of that as well. And that needs to be addressed also. I agree. That's a good reminder. Well, Josh, this is so fun. Like we could go on for hours, uh, and maybe yeah. we'll, maybe yeah. we'll, we'll 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 come bring you back, and we'll do something maybe a little bit more narrow and and, and topic specific. But I just wanted to get get you out there introduced as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was this was fun. This is right up my alley. Like like you said, we could talk uh, about these sorts of things, and we just scratched the surface of some of the issues. So we'll have to do it again. Okay, you know? sounds yeah. good, man. And I and I'm excited to for for you to start your podcast. So if you yes, have to let us yes, know, I'll make yeah. sure make sure we include some links. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for it too, and um, I'll look, I'll look forward to bringing you in. I, the idea there is that is that there's medicine everywhere, right? This, yeah. this idea of that spectrum, right? That like that that drugs can be medicine and diet can be medicine, and su- supplements are medicine and surgery is medicine. Reiki, yeah. radiation, you know, yep. chiropractic, chemotherapy. I could right. I could keep on going. It's right? a spectrum, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a spectrum, and I think that we in this country overemphasize some of some of those things and underutilize others. Yeah. And um, the idea is to bring in 
conversations and insights about all of them um, and, and try to do that in a, in an objective and not biased way, you know, yeah. so that's the idea and craniosacral, right? Put that on the list. Very cool, man. I, I yeah. like it. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate your time, man. Right on. Likewise. Th- thanks so much. Dr. Josh Levitt, folks. So much fun to talk to him. Interesting to consider the notion of what's old being new again, considering the fact that Josh and I both engage in some very old modalities, but now using evidence gleaned from new technology, 75 years of allopathic care, as well as what we're learning from nature itself. Like Josh, I wish these old new treatments were considered not alternatives to care, but rather essential integrations in care. And I'm happy to learn that in states like Connecticut, where Josh practices, naturopathy is covered by insurance. Funny though, considering our conversation, it's because of an old law that allows for it. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can reach out to me directly anytime at jeremy at highway2.health. Before we end this, I have a quick favor to ask. If you haven't given the show stars or a review, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a few seconds here on the app you're listening to to do so. It's one of the best ways to increase visibility of this little podcast and get more people the quality health resource that they need. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast hosted by Wendy Garvin-Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin-Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.